Well, so today we're starting a brand new series. As we're gonna, and as we go through this term, we're going to be essentially looking at who are we as Anchor Church? And we're going to be returning to some of the core vision and values that we established at the beginning. But as we've begun to journey, we are, we're beginning to discover more of who we are and dig more deeply into these themes that God gave us to begin with. And as I was just spending some time in prayer around this through this week, I was really aware that actually what we're going to articulate in these coming weeks is nothing new. <laughs> this is the church that Jesus envisioned from the beginning. This is what he was talking about when he was on earth. And so actually, as I describe some of these themes and as we start to dig into this today, what we're actually saying is what is Jesus's vision for the church as we discover in the scriptures and as he's speaking to his church today? What is the radical root vision that he held for who we would be? The word radical is taken from the Latin word um, radicalis, which means of or having roots to have roots. We are going back to the essential roots of what Christianity is as we explore these values and finding that that is a powerful radical place of Jesus. Now today, I wanna to give us like the beginning of um, like a three-part introduction to this series, which we're gonna do over the coming two weeks as well. <laughs> Sounds like a long introduction, but it's, give, it's basically giving us the foundational theme for how all the other values play out. And it's around the phrase being an apostolic church. What does it mean to be an apostolic church? How do we understand that word? What does that word mean in the scriptures? Um, and, and the reason we're beginning there is that this kind of framework of being apostolic and being defined by the apostolic is, is foundational for who we are. It is the context in which our other core values play out. It defines a direction for which all of our activity, vision, energy wants to be moving and happening. To be an apostolic church is, is like the core nucleus of all that we're going to be. And then everything else we will talk wraps around this idea and the way we're going to do it today is I'm going to look at two words two words apostle apostle and church um, in Greek apostolos and ecclesia and we're going to spend a bit of time with both um, because digging into what these words mean when we find them in the scriptures and and therefore how we apply them into the church today gives us the framework that we need to understand who we are and what it is we're doing here. So let's dive right in. Um, we're going to start in a passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> when you're watching at home, to do it with your Bibles with you. And um, the reason we keep nailing on about this is because actually just getting familiar with this text is so important in your discipleship. So wherever you are now, if it's not beside you as you're watching, hit pause, run and grab it, come back. If you don't have one, email in info at anchorchurch.uk. Um, we'll help you to get hold of one. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, which just gives us just some, some key ideas around this word apostle. It begins like this, reading from verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's um, aliens like people who come from a different place rather than like E.T. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that little phrase in the middle, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're going to part the prophets theme from another day for now, but built on the foundation of the apostles. Why is that so important? Well, the word apostle is an interesting one um, in the New Testament because it's not actually like a religious word when Jesus introduced it. We know that he gathered disciples around him, 12 key disciples, and he calls these 12 out. And it says in the Gospels, he designates them apostles. But it's not a religious word. In the scripture, in, in, the, in uh, secular society at the time, it was a word used to describe somebody who was sent as like an ambassador or a messenger, normally from a king. So in the Roman Empire, it's, it's somebody who has been sent by Caesar, carrying a message, carrying his culture to establish his will and his culture and his ideas in a foreign place. Um, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, which I know you're all reading avidly, but I'll tell you about it anyway, it says that it, uh, Apostolos is a delegate messenger or one sent forth with orders. It's someone who carries the authority of the one sending them to bring this truth, to bring this message, to bring this culture with them into a new area. Now, Jesus intentionally borrows this word, apostolos, to describe who his initial disciples are. And then we read that the church is founded on this apostolic foundation. This is really important. Anne Scott, a pastor now working in California, says this, the word in scripture is apostolos. It is not originally a biblical term. It's a cultural term. Jesus borrowed the language of culture to capture the imagination of his followers. Apostles were sent by the emperor or Caesar to establish the culture of the empire in various corners of the earth. Sent communities carry an expectation of introducing the culture of the kingdom and thereby infecting the culture of surrounding cities. Those who are sent are meant to bring something with them. And the church being apostolic in its core identity is to say this is meant to be a community that is going into new places and bringing something with it. The culture and the will of its king. Therefore, when we look at this word, I think when we think about the word apostle, often we either think of like um, sort of these 12 ancient leaders who can feel kind of removed from us if we fail to look at their humanity, or we can think about statues and museums, or we can think about um, slightly weird um, Christian ministries, including white suits and very big cars. We can get into these ideas about it, but actually the word apostle is the defining characteristic of what church should be, an invasive force into all the things of the world. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about what the church is. Often we think about the building and we think, well, you know, um, that's, a, that's a nice church building, like where, where we got married or um, that, that's an old place that's interesting historically or whatever. Sometimes we think about an event like, are you going to church today? Are you, are you logging into church today as it might be at the moment? But actually for Jesus, it is this movement of people, this vision of an apostolic community, a sent people moving into all the things of the city, bringing his life there. But we need our second word to unpack this more. And to do this, we're going to major our time today on, on a passage where Jesus introduces this second word. It's the Greek word ecclesia, and it's the word that is often translated in the New Testament as church. So really what we are doing here is saying well 
what is his vision of church? When Jesus thought church, what was he wanting to communicate? What was he dreaming up? What was he imagining? Like, what, what did he hunger for it to become? When he looks at us in the city today, as a part of his church in this city and this nation, what is he dreaming for us all to become and to move into? This word ecclesia is really, really helpful in finding out. Grab your Bibles again, and we're going to go to a passage in Matthew chapter 16. And... Um, I'm going to read it to us, and then I'm going to do just a little bit of unpicking um, about what it says. So reading from verse 13 through to verse 20. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? I kind of like that he starts with an easy question. Like, not what do you think, but what do they think? This can't get awkward. They could say something awful, and if Jesus, like, doesn't like it, there's no, no awkwardness. And so they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he says to them, and this is a harder question, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I just imagine him in that moment, like... Is Jesus going to be like, that's blasphemy, how dare you? Are the other disciples going to laugh at him? What's going to happen in that moment? But Jesus is like, you got it, you nailed it. He says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That uh, means Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood, i.e. people, have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, a word drawn from the word for rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In the middle of this passage, We've got this little word, church. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is launching this concept here. But there's some weird things in this passage. Um, and two kind of big questions in particular that come out when we look at this passage, which really help us to understand what he's trying to get at. The first question is this. Why does Jesus go to Caesarea Philippi? Now, if you're like, if your ancient geography of like the Holy Land isn't that amazing, um, you're, then, uh, then this might help you. Jesus had to go 25 miles out of his way to get to Caesarea Philippi. He goes there, he has this one conversation with the disciples, and then he goes back again. This is literally the only thing he goes there for. And so you think, why, why did Jesus take a 50 mile round trip on foot just to have this one conversation that's weird it gets weirder still the the name of the place was really offensive to the jewish people it's named after two people caesar who was the like the emblem of the reigning superpower who has invaded their land who has taken their freedom who, to who they're paying taxes this would be like going into occupied france in world war ii and talking about a place called hitlerville this is not a good name to have in a place if you are a jewish young man at the time like these guys are Philip is um, is a king called Herod Philip. Um, he is someone who is kind of buddied up with the Romans for financial gain. He, he is in a position of power because he's doing what the Romans want him to do. And so this is not a popular guy. This The name of this place is not a good place for him to go. But then it gets weirder still. Because Caesarea Philippi was not only out of the way and with a really bad name. But it was a center of like idolatry and pagan worship that centered around this one Greek god called Pan. 
Pan was the god of desolate places, which I was thinking must have been at like the back of the queue, <laughs> when the different like things you can be god over were handed out. The god of desolate places. He was symbolized by a goat. And so in this place, there was a temple for Pan, there was a temple for Caesar. And around the kind of worship of Pan, there was all this stuff around goats. Um, they did some pretty horrific things with goats. Um, and it became this sort of like hotspot for idolatry and pagan worship, which to the Jews was just anathema. In the middle of all this were these deep, deep underground caves. And these caves were notorious. They were so deep that people were just mesmerized by, by the kind of natural wonder of them. And they felt there must be something supernatural around this. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he said this about them. The place is called Panium or Panius or Caesarea Philippi, where is a top of a mountain that is raised to an immense height and at its sides, beneath or at its bottom, a dark cave opens itself, within which there is a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. It contains a mighty quantity of water which is immovable, and when anybody lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. These caves were so deep and had all of this kind of like idolatry, superstition wrapped around them. So much so that the people said these are the very gates of Hades itself. And the nickname for that place became the gates of Hades, the gateway to the underworld, the place of death. This is the place Jesus wanted to go to announce the word church. But there's another tricky question <laughs> that we've got to ask, not just why did he go there? But then Jesus talks to his disciples and he seems to make a really obvious, simple mistake. He gets Peter's dad's name wrong. Now, um, Peter, son of Jonah, he says. Now, in every other place in the New Testament, Peter's dad is called John. And so we're kind of left with this question of like, what's going on there? Like, is this just like a, a first century typo? Did Matthew get it down wrong? Is this... Um, um, that's pretty unlikely. Um, is this um, that um, Peter's dad just had a nickname? Um, some people call him Jonah, some people call him John, they're similar. Um, that's more possible. But I think there's a bit more going on. And I think it harks back to the fact that the disciples, like, they knew the name Jonah. This wasn't a like a random name to drop in here. There's a backstory here. And when they thought Jonah, they thought, yeah, I know a guy called Jonah. I remember a story here. There's something in our backstory that we want to go to. And actually, the interesting thing is most of us know it too. Most of us are familiar with a story about a guy called Jonah. And God asked him, I want you to go to this far off place called Nineveh. And Jonah didn't want to go. And if you know the story, you know what he does. He jumps on a boat. He goes in the other direction. He's trying to get away from this place. God sends a storm. Jonah ends up in the sea. He ends up being swallowed by a whale and spending three days inside this whale. And eventually when he comes out of the fish, he does then go, speaks to the people of Nineveh, this dark, depressing place full of wickedness, brokenness, poverty, violence, every kind of evil we can think of. And the city comes to its knees and says, we will change our ways. And for many of us, we've heard this story and we thought this is a story about a guy who was afraid to go where God called him to go. This is, a, this is a story about um, Jonah being asked to go to a scary, dark, nasty place and thinking, I'm terrified to go there, which would be understandable, and so he legs it. But actually, that's not the story Jonah, Jonah is telling. What we, what we need to know about Nineveh is that Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. 
And Assyria was the, the superpower right next door to the nation of Israel where Jonah lived, who was the greatest threat to their peace and their security. It was the nation that would soon conquer them, rip them out of their land and take them like slaves into exile. This was like the epicenter of evil in Jonah's lifetime. These were the bad guys. These were the worst enemies they could think of. If they wanted to imagine the worst imaginable force of darkness on the world, it was Assyria focused in this massive ancient city of Nineveh. Now, when we start to think about that, we realize actually maybe Jonah's reasons for not wanting to go there are a little bit different. And as we get to the end of Jonah, we see actually his, his reasons for not wanting to go there was not that he was fearful for, for harm, or certainly not primarily, but actually he didn't want to go there because he didn't want God to be kind to these people. Come with me to Jonah chapter 4. I'm just going to read a few verses. This is at the end of Jonah. The cities repented, transformed, completely changed, given up so many ways of wickedness and darkness and are moving into healing and life. And here's Jonah's reaction after all this has happened. Chapter 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so outraged by having to go there because he's like, God, I knew what you're like. I knew that you're the kind of God that is going to forgive them and heal them rather than punish them and defeat them. Jonah goes there thinking, these are my enemies. I want to see them destroyed, not saved. And God says, my heart pours out for this broken city to see its healing and redemption and fullness. Jonah says, I'm so angry about this, I would rather die. What an extraordinary story. Jonah then, in the Old Testament scriptures, becomes like the archetypal story of the prophet who is sent into the darkest place that the people can sense, can even imagine, and brings it wholeness and healing and life. Now, take these two things together. Jesus has brought the, the, the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's not a nice place. We've heard that. It's like the, the, the pinnacle of darkness, as they could see at the time. The gates of Hades themselves are said to be there. And then he name drops Jonah, this prophet from the Old Testament, who is the one more than anyone else who goes into the place of darkness. And he says to them, on this rock, on the apostolic foundations of Peter and the disciples, I will build my church. And guess what? The gates of Hades shall not prevail. He leads them up to this very place of the maximum darkness he can think of and says, this is what the church is going to be about. It's going to be not about hiding away from the problems of the world, but it's going to be about walking up to them and confronting them. Sometimes we read that thing, that, that verse, and we think the gates are what is closing the church in. <laughs> That's often our natural instinct when we read this. We think, actually, is this, is this hell invading the church? But remember, any like um, 
old school or fantasy war scene. Think like the gates of Minas Tirith. Think Narnia. Think Troy. Think Braveheart. Think any of these. And you'll know that actually when people come against the gates of a city, it's because they are invading it. The picture that Jesus gives to his disciples is I want you to come up against all things of hell. I want you to kick the door in and invade. I want you to go into the places of greatest desperation and bring life. I want you to go into the places of greatest hopelessness and bring hope. I want you to attack the places where there is no self-esteem and build people up out of the ashes. I want you to go into the poverty and bring wholeness and provision. I want you to go into the places of sickness and bring health and compassion and well-being. I want you, my church, to be a people who intentionally invade the darkness to the gates of hell, to the cities of Nineveh, and bring my life there. This is a vision for church that is just so much more than we've just ever imagined. It's so much different to what we've often seen or perceived. It's so much bigger than the worship gathering or Sunday or anything to do with the building. It's the call of God's people to be confrontational to the things of darkness. In short, it's Jesus saying to his disciples, you are my church, there is all things of darkness, I want you to go and pick a fight. And guess what? I'm giving you the keys so that you can win. This call that Jesus gives to his disciples is not a new one. It is the most ancient call on the people of God. When we go back through the Old Testament, the, the beginning of the story of the people of God begins with the promises made to Abraham in many ways from Genesis 12 onwards. And, um, and those promises are formative of their expectations. And on one of the occasions that God meets with Abraham, he gives him this extraordinary promise. He talks about Abraham having offspring. And he says this in Genesis 22, 7, 17. And your offspring, Jesus and his church, shall possess the gates of his enemies. This scripture is being fulfilled in this moment in this vision of jesus go out there as my church find the darkness transform it in my love we're about ready now to look at that second word in a bit more detail with all of this extraordinary stuff wrapped around it because the word gives us like a pinpoint focus on what all of this has been about ecclesia on this rock, Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia. There are loads of words Jesus could have used. And the, another of many surprising things in this incredible passage is that Jesus doesn't use the words we'd expect. He doesn't say, on this rock, I will build my new temple. That would have been sensible. That would have been biblical. That would have been historical. That would have made sense with a lot of New Testament theology. Um, it, it, it would have worked. But he didn't say that. He didn't say, on this rock I will build my network of synagogues. The synagogue was a local place of worship and teaching centered around a building, but he didn't say that, that wasn't his vision. He said, on this rock I will build my ecclesia. The ecclesia um, was, um, we can define it like this, an assembly of the people convened at the public place for counsel for the purpose of deliberating. Again, this is not a religious word, it's a secular one. It was, a, it was a group of people who were called out of society to consider the situation in their society and to make decisions towards the well-being of that society. It is an assembly. It is a gathering. It is those who have been given authority to make decisions on behalf of their city, that it may flourish and be blessed. Ed Silvose, 
um, trained in theology and in business and who have seen just seen some extraordinary transformation, particularly in South America, writes this. The New Testament examples of church are vastly different from the contemporary notion that it is a place where members go, usually once a week. Back then, church always referred to people and never to buildings, and it was made up of individuals who operated 24-7 from house to house, all over town as a transforming organism, organism, not as a static institution. You can check out those verses in Acts um, 246 and 542. Its objective was the transformation of people and of society, rather than acting as a transfer station for saved souls bound for heaven. The Ecclesia was a group of people who were called out to be different. They were a group of people who were given authority to have impact. And they were a group of people who were intent on changing the culture. And it's this word that Jesus plants upon his disciples in this moment. He uses his word on two occasions. This is one of them. And says, you are my Ecclesia. You are not called out to imitate the values of the empire or Rome. You are not called out to do what the surrounding culture is, but you are called out to manifest my culture, my will, my life, my ways upon the cities. And this is where we land. And this is the formative ideal and vision and dream of what church is always meant to be this is where it begins and is rooted this is like the the hub and the nucleus and the the very heartbeat of jesus himself that his people be a people who are founded on the apostles an apostolic foundation for what church can be it's a people who view themselves as those sent with authority into all parts of the of the world around them to bring its life and flourishing it is a group of of people who are called out as an ecclesia who together in community conspire for the overthrow of all things of darkness and death and the city around them it is a group of people who understand they have been given authority to bring change it is a group of people who will get on their knees in love and service of the world around them who see the the broken esteem of the sex worker and say that person needs to be honored who see the 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 hopelessness of the rust sleeper and say they need to be loved who who see the pain of the person in sickness and say we contend for their healing who see the 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 workaholism in business culture and thinks we need to transform it with the ways of rest and grace the kingdom of jesus breaks into all things as we begin this series this is where we start the energy and the momentum and the vision of church always is a pouring outward a vision for the city a group of people who believe and dream for its best. And to be an apostolic community is at the very heartbeat of what we are longing to be, what my Christianity needs to be, what your Christianity needs to be, what the spirituality and intentions of Jesus is all about. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to hand back to the other guys um, just to think about how we respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, when we come to the vision of Jesus for church, your vision, your heartbeat, um, often we are aware that we've just reduced it to something small and to something introspective and to something tame. And Lord, today we want to say we are sorry for that and we want to let that go. 
And Lord, instead, we want to step into your dream for what we can be and what you long for us to become and what Birmingham and our cities need for us to become. And so, Lord, I ask you that in this moment, you would come by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill each one of us with your power, with your compassion and with your vision. Lord, that as we step into our week and as we engage the world around us, that we do so with your vision of transformation in tiny little ways, in, in, in loving our neighbour, in serving the people around us, in dreaming massive for how we can impact the city through our vocation, through our work, through our networks, whatever it may be, we just say, Holy Spirit, will you light up our imaginations with the apostolic vision of church, Jesus, that you always had. Fill us afresh. Lead us. Lord, we're all yours, and we want to do this your way. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.